Welcome to the Stone Carvers Guild podcast. Here you will meet a variety of carvers working throughout North America. Drawing on our collective experience, we seek to share knowledge about this ancient art and to do our part to ensure that stone carving will play an important role in built environments for generations to come. So whether you are an experienced carver, new to the craft, or just curious, put on your safety goggles, open up your mind, and welcome to the workshop. I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bethany Lee. And I'm Joel Benorwood. Welcome, everyone. How are you doing, Bethany and Joel? Great, great. I moved a 4,000-pound block of soapstone on Friday. Wow. First time ever that large of a thing. It was exciting. And so when you say you moved it, you used equipment. Oh, um, maybe I should clarify. Several large men and various machines moved more than 4,000 pounds of soapstone. I didn't lift a finger, but I was <laughs> responsible for the, move, the movement of this she large coordinated. Block. You're so much smarter than I, I am. <laughs> what's, what's the largest block of stone you've ever moved? <laughs> oh, by myself? I'm not, hey, well, with a forklift. Or with the crew. It's always with a forklift. <laughs> Used to, I think I've moved a, a seven thousand, maybe seven thousand mm-hmm. block of stone, but that was with a forklift. And mm. did you do you have a forklift in your in your studio? No, yeah. I have a pallet jack. Wow! So, will you, will you walk us through this process? The stone arrived <laughs> on the back of a truck. Yes. Um. So no, it didn't. I went to the quarry here in Virginia, soapstone quarry, with. Gary Colson and a couple of guys who have a trailer and we had an adventure in the rain. They loaded us up with a forklift and then actually Gary had brought some logs to roll it. So wow. um, they, it got loaded on the back of the trailer and then they had a, a winch logs. They got it over the axle, strapped it down, hauled it back to Gary's studio where he's going to cut it up and then we're, we're dividing it. And then they got it off the trailer seriously by tying the stone to another large block of stone, putting rolling logs underneath it and driving the trailer out from underneath it. Wow. It was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it was, exciting. Did it, was it scary? <laughs> was there a scary moment? There was several scary moments. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was exciting. Exciting. And we're going to make lots of stuff out of it. So yeah. how, what are the dimensions? Like, just... It was a prism-shaped piece of stone. And it's about, uh, what was, gosh, it, it looks bigger or smaller depending on the context. But it, it was probably about 50 inches long and maybe 40 inches tall on each dimension. Uh, wow. Yeah. So that do you was know good. the? Do you know like how much a cubic foot of soapstone typically weighs, or does it vary a lot from? I think it's two hundred and ten pounds per cubic foot, if I remember correctly. Wow! Wow! That's so and much I... denser than uh, limestone. Limestone's about one hundred and forty to one fifty. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. what would I want to know more about the scary moments? <laughs> several well the sliding it off of the back of the trailer no doubt did it did it did it ever have to like just like fall or did it was it a was there a ramp involved in the sliding Uh, off it was a pretty low trailer 
And it was supposed to fall onto these blocks of wood. And it kind of missed the blocks of wood. Wow. But, uh, but it was just on a gravel. But actually, the, <laughs> the loading it onto the trailer was um, the guy with the forklift basically held up the back end of it. Well, the front end of it rested on a log and then they hooked it, a winch, like a chain hoist winch thing around it and pulled it forward as the forklift pushed it. I mean, it was just, anyway, just that weight of stuff balanced yeah. on things it was, it was sort of thrilling. Wow. So, What are you going to do with it? So that is actually just for, I'll probably do like a half-life sized figure. And then I want to use it for classes because um, it's a local quarry. I really wanted to source some local stone that had a connection to the land. And um, there's this quarry and they're willing to work with me. And I have some neighbors who are stone carvers and they have things like trailers. So we'll see. We'll see. Wow. Not sure. You'll have to yeah. keep us posted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if the podcast continues, I can, I can tell the story. Of what happens oh, I'm optimistic. This podcast is going to continue. Well, well. <laughs> Yes, we're going to follow this until the soapstone block is completely used. The For sure. will go on. Yeah. I don't want to brag, guys, but I moved a 10-pound block of slate today. So. <laughs> <laughs> there may or may not have been a forklift involved. <laughs> okay. okay, who is our guest today? Guest is Joseph Kincannon, right? Uh, but you know him better than the rest of us. Yeah. I've known him for the quite a while. The wrong person was asking yeah. that question, I think. Here. Tremendous, <laughs> tremendously talented stone carver that I've known for years. And uh, got a lot of great stories. So should we turn it over to the conversation with Joseph? Sounds good. Cool. Good. Joseph, can you start by just introducing yourself the way you do when you meet someone at a party? <laughs> and they ask you what you do. That's something I try to avoid talking about. No, um, let me see the last party I was at. So um, a stone carver um, by trade, technically called an architectural sculptor. And for most of all my career, the, the sculpture and carving that would be done goes on buildings Sometimes it's freestanding work that might be going into a park setting, public sculpture. But for the most part, um, this is work that is um, architectural, goes on a building. So you can see I'm not really a hit at parties. <laughs> <laughs> What's the typical response when you tell people what you do? You know, it's funny. People, it seems like they really don't know how to respond a lot of times if there are photographs or if it's a shop setting, then um, people kind of jump on board quickly because it's recognizable. If you live in a city, you've seen this type of work. But um, generally the response is, you know, maybe glaze over instantly. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll scramble a little bit to try to make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, mostly if I, I just start referring to famous buildings that people might know and uh, stone carvers and the like. And then, you know, it can, it's something that everybody can relate to. I think mostly people don't believe that we still exist, that there are people who work with hammers and chisels and carve on stone. And it just seems, and we're not seen very much. Most of us, it seems are cloistered away in our workshops. 
And so uh, it's always seems to come as a surprise that, that there are still those of us that do this for a living. So how did you discover that it existed? I uh, fell into it, really. I graduated from high school, and my brother lined me up a job, just a summer job, so I can figure out what to do with my life at a cathedral in New York City. And I lived in a, a rural part of New England. So moving to the big city was a big deal, but he just got me a job in the gift shop. But it also happened to be the year that they started a stone yard at the cathedral to continue the construction of that building. Back in 1892, it was started. And when World War II started, they stopped construction on it. So it just kind of sat there dormant. And then in 1979, they um, built a stone yard with the idea of building the two west front towers to continue the construction of that great old building. And since we um, don't really, you know, most of our stone cutters and carvers had died off, uh, they brought over Englishmen and then later some French stone carvers as well. But that's, I just happened to be there and I saw them, you know, stones arriving and some apprentices standing around before there was even a building. It was just a big block of stone and six or seven people chiseling on it with mallets and chisels. I thought, that looks interesting, you know. <laughs> is it St. John's the Divine? Is that is that the Yeah, cathedral? that's right. That's right. St. John the Divine, Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's it's really gorgeous. Did they complete Did they complete the two towers, or was it no? No, we we worked on the Southwest Tower and got it to about the halfway point, and then the funds, you know, recession hit in the early '90s and kind of killed that. We had quite a few stone cutters at that point because we had moved into commercial work. You know, just not solely working on the cathedral, but doing work around New York City and restoring churches or we added a wing onto the to the Jewish museum was was kind of a big deal to us. Um, I think it's an old eighteen nineties building, Gothic style. So it was we were starting to get work around the city. So how did you get out of the, the gift shop and into the? <laughs> it was I felt um, um, you know, I just kind of pushed for it. Well, for starters, my brother got, worked at the cathedral and he was one of the early apprentices. So he um. He did well as a banker mason. He was one of the best stone cutters. And so based on his experience, I kind of weaseled my way in. But I had to put a few years in before the door opened. There was a lot of um, competition for to get into this apprenticeship. And it was geared mostly to Harlem and um, Washington Heights, people of color. It was um, um, set up mainly for that those communities. And so I had to wait a while. And then eventually there was an opening and um, they put me on one of the, you have these big circular saws, these um, for cutting stone, the five inch diameter blade. And that's what we, what I started out as a sawyer, but I, they kind of ribbed me the stone cutters because in the gift shop, I took a pay cut to become an apprentice stone cutter (laughs) and from going from two hour lunch breaks with, all the girls in the gift shop versus working with these these guys in a stone yard with no heat and for a pay cut. I was like, hmm, career choice. But I'm pretty sure I'd be floor manager by now in that gift shop if I'd stuck it out. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got into it. Just happened to be there. 
Do you remember the first, like, how, how did you move from the saw to, to the banker? Yeah, um, I, I actually liked running the saw. It was, you work alone for the most part, and if you can get used to water raining on you <laughs> throughout the day, I, I liked it, you know, just big stones. And it's nothing like what we have today for in terms of stone fabrication equipment. Basically, these saws, you know, we could cut L-shaped stones, and if you can get fancy, you know, trying to cut as much off the stone so that the stone cutters would have less um, labor. But I was probably on it for a year, year and a half, and then kept pushing to become a stone cutter apprentice. And eventually they relented and let me in. (laughs) But a lot of times when people are on the saws, if they're any good at it, then they kind of, you know, it's hard to get off of the being a sawyer because they're a really important link to getting a lot of the work done. So it's, if, as soon as you get good at it, then you move into the apprenticeship program and, <laughs> you know, and then their new Sawyer comes on board and you have to train them. It seems like that that experience would, I mean, that must have shaped your approach to a, a piece of stone when you, when you eventually did become a, a cutter that, that yeah. you, just the idea of like, getting rid of as much material as possible and, and being efficient about that it just seems invaluable for that to have that experience. Is that, is that just me being uh, imaginative and romantic or is, is there, you do have that, that problem. Don't you? Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think mostly I was just, um, you know, kind of um, taken aback at the scale of this type the operation but this cathedral, it may not have been the wisest choice, but they decided to start from scratch. So the quarry blocks were brought in from Indiana, so big 8- to 12-ton blocks of stone, and we took it from there to the finished product. So we had a big frame saw and a couple circular saws. So I was, um, you know, we would turn these massive stones on their side. Matthew's familiar with all this kind of stuff, but um, you just make a pile of gravel or rubble and you and with a gantry you turn these blocks over and the ground would shake and so i was just impressed with the scale of the work and it's in the middle of new york city but in in terms of my getting a feel for the stone um probably not so much the only chisel kind of stuff that we would do as sawyers would be the you know if there's a rough edge that a saw break we'd call it you'd have to chisel that down flat so we did have a little bit of hand work but I was way completely separate from those that were in there just cutting stone day in and day out. I wanted to, and I took on the habit of during break times carving noses on some of these big quarry blocks. <laughs> just, I don't know, I, I noticed, I thought I'd try out and um, caught a little bit of flack for that. So that was probably my first inspiration into actually hand cutting and that sort of thing. So if you, you, you said you started at the gift shop because you didn't really know what you were doing and it was just something to do. So do you remember yeah. what it was about that made you want to be in the stoneyard? Was it that you wanted to carve or was it that you said you want to be a carver or you were just like, oh, this is interesting or something else? What, what was it? Well, thank you. That's, I mean, kind of the way you said it, I, you know, having come from the country and I'd walk around New York city, I'd see these gargoyles. A lot of this stuff is just right down at street level. And I just couldn't fathom 
you know, how those things were made and knowing nothing about it, not being in the stone trade, I just marvel at them. This is what big cities have, I guess. And um, so when it came to um, um, actually, I think what kind of drew me into it was, again, growing up in the country, all the people were did physical work. They're like dairy farmers and you know, I worked on a road crew, so we're just cutting brush and that sort of things. It's all physical work, and um, the heroes of those communities are working people that do physical work. It's not later; it's kind of looked on. People are looked down upon if they did physical work if they worked with their hands. But that's not the environment I grew up in. The, uh, the carpenters and people that did timber work, and being rural New England. Um, there was a lot of maple um, syrup production and I would work with some of those people once in a while that still use oxen to go through the woods and collect sap. So it was a really rustic world that I came out of and uh, moving into New York city, I really struggled to find <laughs> something, some kind of link. And, and here are these people working by hand or knocking stone around with a hammer and chisel. And that seemed very familiar. So that, drew me the kind of physical aspect and then you know these strange english people i'd never really been around people from other countries and you've got one of the men the older men was from liverpool and i couldn't understand him and all i could think of was the beatles did he know the beatles or not <laughs> maybe that's why i became a stonecutter so the whole entry of um the scale of this building and working by hand and working with um, people from another country kind of I was completely swept in by all that but it was still kind of a continuation of what was already already in your blood and I'd say yes it was the only work I did as a high school student was to work part-time on farms and that sort of thing so there was no uh there wasn't a whole lot there weren't too many choices I think my brother was trying to get me out of (laughs) out of the country and uh, into civilization and so Hence the gift shop <laughs> job. In like today's day and age where we live in a digital world, how yeah. do you see that play into things in your conversations with people as we started this conversation with? You know, you're a guy who works with your hands, makes beautiful things, and that has become even more of a rarity as time progresses on. How does that come Yeah, about? I mean, I think Matthew can we can both speak to this. If you go back twenty, twenty-five years, then before technology kind of overwhelmed the the industry, it was pretty tough for stone carvers. I mean, um, without a steady gig like the cathedral out there scrounging around to get work on, you know, it was Austin, Texas. After I was in New York, I moved to Austin, and that's a modern city. And so glass buildings and, you know, they have older masonry buildings, but they're finished, you know, and a lot of them were, Unfortunately, a lot of them were torn down, but um, it's not. It wasn't an easy route as a stone carver because it it takes time. It costs money to do what we do, and um, those that can scrounge your way through and and make it, it takes a lot of um, you know, hard work and time. But I will say, as far as the kind of technological advances that have happened in recent last ten years or so, I figured that was the death knell for what we do. And I'm finding that it's kind of on the contrary. 
um, all of a sudden these big stone mills are taking on big carving jobs because they have robots that can actually do it. It's a little bit more affordable. They can, they used to stay away from this kind of work for the most part, in my opinion. And now these big carving jobs are coming on board, but they, they need carvers to do the finish work because the robots just can or cannot do it. They can't um, do what we call undercutting and all the kind of, you know, the more finer nuances of hand carving. So we're getting all of a sudden requests from mills to, for finished carvers to go in and follow the robot. And I've done that at a couple of these places and it's, it's interesting to see how it works. Um, you're racing with the robot in a way where that whoever the technician is that programs the stuff for the robot to do, that guy is watching you carve and he's going to steal your techniques to feed it into that robot. So it's like, you know, one time we're thinking, well, that robot, you know, it's, we're going to give it a special lube job, you know, peanut butter or whatever else. We <laughs> but in fact, it did. there's all this work that's kind of, coming you know following the robot but it's more finished carving the stuff that i was trained initially and matthew i'm sure it's the same for you banker masonry so all the geometric stone cutting and moldings and architectural stuff like that that has pretty much been taken by technology it's we don't really do that kind of work anymore unless it's smaller projects in your shop if it's a doorway or a fireplace stone cutters might do the moldings but quite often you'll go to a mill and they'll they'll do the moldings and leave the carving blocks for us to do. So we just focus on that. But that part of the trade, I'd say, and it's really technology's kind of taken that. I agree with you that like when it when the CNC machines originally came out, I thought, oh man, I made some <laughs> bad life choices in my twenties and thirties. Yeah, and uh, now I'm going to have to stick this out. But it seems to kind of be going the same way that a lot of digital innovation, it, it's, um, it goes so far, but then it, it doesn't quite get to the finish line in that there is a, 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 I don't know if it's even articulatable, but like there's this uh, absence of humanity mm-hmm. in some of the stuff that's getting produced uh, mechanically. And, I think people on a on a you know on a subconscious level register that and mm-hmm. and can see it a lot like the the analogy that I frequently use is the difference between an MP3 and a and a vinyl record there's a there's a physicality to the vinyl record that people uh-huh. perceive and it's been interesting to see that to experience that Yes. Yeah, you know, and 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 to see that people are starting to recognize the difference, which is which is good. Yeah, I think that's going a bit deeper. What you're saying, I think that's true. And I was recently looking at um, a video of the construction of Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Spain. You're probably familiar with, and um, they've, I think, they have another decade or so to complete this building. But they're using all the latest technology, and they showed kind of like what I described where the Spanish carvers are finishing, following the robot, um, giving it life as the Spanish carvers say, it's kind of breathing life. And it is a pretty dead looking product when it comes off of the, the CNC. And so <laughs> sometimes I laugh and think uh, it's our job to add the flaws to it, <laughs> to show that it's made by a human. 
but even strangely enough, in um, earlier in my career, um, a lot of the work was being done by machines, and then we'd rework it by hand to make it look as if it was hand worked, which seems dishonest. But then more recently, there are some people that want uh, you're following up a robot, and they kind of want to give the impression that the robot did it all by itself. So you're giving it more of a machine look, like so you're it's a rough product coming off the robot and you're cleaning it up to make it <laughs> mimic the machine. Like that's the kind of embracing technology aspect. I think there are designers out there. There are that have just requested no human hands touch this product. Well, it's not very honest because human hands always do end up having to do that. But um, it's just funny to see it switching from the human touch being desired to to us not being part of the equation at all. But I'd say that's in the minority. I think still mostly it's like you say, Matthew, where it, it just it's it needs the human touch to kind of people respond to it. And and just to on that point as well, when we used to do demonstrations, people would come up and say, well, there are machines that can do that. As if because we're in a trade that is creative and fun like we're having fun it's actually quite a lot of hard work but people think that maybe we'd be the first to go because the fun work will be replaced by the um machines but i'm finding that all jobs are being automation just you know in the military and medical industries and um you know research for law firms that sort of thing it's all these jobs are kind of evaporating due to automation and um maybe to be in the arts to do something creative might be a little safer bet because it actually you have to be a human <laughs> to kind of appreciate it is to make art is to be human an expression of who we are it's not just a product so maybe hopefully it's more the safer you know trade or profession to be in fingers this, crossed <laughs> the next the next episode of this podcast will actually be made by AI. So I haven't told everybody That's right. this yet. But, uh, We're just going to interview a CNC machine. But um, yeah. <laughs> Given that things have changed so much since you started, can you tell us something about your formation and who you learned from and what the important steps were? Yes. Early on, I was, you know, I didn't come to it quickly. I was pretty clumsy. And um it was interesting to see, for me, to see people had only been doing it for a year or two. They just looked like old hands. They just, it just seemed like magic that they could just click along with it. And we were taught by hand, meaning um, just mallet and hammer, no pneumatic tools or grinders or saws or that sort of thing. It was all the English were strict about starting just with hand tools. And then you would, after a year or whatever, kind of graduate into the pneumatic air hammers. But I just uh, couldn't believe that people could actually do that and those that have not and hadn't done it for very many years. So just once you're locked into this process of removing stone by hand, it is you get completely consumed by it, even if you're doing something just a flat surface, what might, might people might think is boring. It's not at all if you're a stone cutter, you're you're just um, in this kind of trance-like <laughs> state where hours just fly by. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, though. I, I get lost sometimes. <laughs> right. Who did you learn from and who are the important people you learned from and like the important steps? 
Yeah, it, it kind of there's a pecking order where the top of the line were the these stone masons and um, brought over from England. And um, initially, the first one was a man who'd worked on Liverpool Cathedral for a, I think he had a 50 year career on just that one building. And then they completed it in the 70s and he came over to, to start us out. And then another another man, uh, Alan Bird, came. From, he had worked on Wells Cathedral in England. So we had these English who would work on Westminster Abbey, Nick Fairplay, Chichester Cathedral, Wells Cathedral, just you know English stonecutters and carvers. So initially they taught us everything from scratch, how to split stone and kind of dress stone and do flat faces. And so the basic kind of very old, <laughs> old world basics were taught to us early on, even though we didn't really need to know all of them, but splitting stone with plugs and feathers or feathers and wedges, this very old technique. They taught us that and how to dress a block of stone, cutting just flat surfaces. Um, a lot of time just doing that. It's a very hard thing to do. And then you moved into the fancier kind of moldings and more complex geometric forms. But they were a few of them and many of us. So you didn't. I didn't always learn specifically from those Englishmen. I would learn from guys who'd been there a few years longer than me. Three guys from Harlem in particular took me under their wing. One, unfortunately, who just passed away uh, with about a year ago, Jose Tapia, kind of gave me um, my first leg up. He loaned me some of his tools and showed me the ropes. Um, so you kind of learn it. It's a workshop environment. And the head master cutters are not always available to answer every help you along. So there were a good three or four people who were had been cutting stone for three or four years before I came along that kind of stepped in to show me the way. The great thing about those workshops is how um, I think that's generally the way they've been for the longest time where you had the master who was available to kind of oversee the whole operation, but you had people down the line that would show you the way as well. Knowing what you know now, what would you have gone back and told beginning you, Stone Carver, as far as advice? If you were the master in the shop that you were learning from, what do you think you would have told yourself? Get a job in a gift shop. No, uh, <laughs> that's a really interesting one. I think what attracts young people to this is what much of what brought me in is the physicality, the kind of working with your hands again. It's interesting because um, we've strayed so far away from that working with our hands and we're in pretty rough shape in this country because of it. We don't have, we're short on most of the trades, you know, plumbers, electricians, carpenters certainly masons and and so there is this interest in you you know using our hands making things with our hands but in terms of what my advice would be for the young people is to basically in this country unlike europe and some of the older parts of the world architecturally we have all, the, all these old buildings in our cities that um are falling into disrepair and there are practically none of us to kind of keep these places up and in good shape. And then they can become dangerous, you know, parts of buildings fall off and that sort of thing. But it's also, it drives a tourist industry places like New York city, the empire state building, statue of Liberty. These, you know, there's, there's money involved with keeping these 
monuments and buildings intact. So there's a real need for young people to do this kind of work. And I think it's interesting work. It's a lot of times it might be an old gargoyle that's dangerously weathered and it has to be taken off the building and you carve a new one in a workshop and you replace it. So the variety of work is great and the scale of work is great. And I think that for the most part, a lot of the techniques haven't changed a whole lot. And I find that what attracts young people to our trade is that there's almost this kind of monastic approach where initially, I mean, basically every stonecutter in a shop has their own workbench, a banker, we call it, and they get a block of stone and they're working on that stone for, it could be months that they're working on it. So there's a real attraction to working in a creative medium, but also just not having to you know, sometimes just working on your own. You always have to work in a team, you know, mostly with other carvers. So all our work has to kind of work together. But I think that's a big draw is just working with your hands. It's creative work and it's for a good cause. It's keeping these old buildings up and running. And there's a lot of new construction, I'll say, maybe because of technology. Um, you can go either direction. So when, when St. John Divine closed up shop you moved to austin talk about that because that's that's when you started taking on apprentices of your own is that correct yeah that's right after i'd been at the cathedral up in new york for about 12 years i did kind of find myself in a position where i was teaching there you know young carvers we all did and that's certainly what i did as well but when the money dried up my wife Holly, who I met at the cathedral, is a preservation architect at the same at this cathedral, and she was working on churches around New York City. She is a native Texan, <laughs> and so when um, we decided to leave New York, um, she wanted to get back to Texas. It's uh, one of the limestone capitals of the country, and um, her home, and so we moved down there to start our own business, and. Um, there aren't very, Texas has more stone carvers and Indiana and some other places um, actually has a community of stone carvers, but um, it's hard to find them. And so we ended up training and mostly they have, they have their own shops. So we started training people in Austin. And for some stupid reason, maybe we had our shop in Austin, which is a difficult place to have a stone cutting shop because it's we make a lot of dust and it's not the cheapest place, but, but we always had an influx of people interested in cutting stones. So we didn't have to really go out and seek people out. They'd come in and we'd um, start them out kind of as an apprentice thing in England where you carve a cube of stone. And then from that cube, you carve it into a ball. And if they can survive that on their own time, then we'll throw some work at them. And that that's how a lot of, a lot of people came through our shop, probably um, 15 or so stone carvers came through and some of them worked there for 10 years or some only a couple of years. But yeah, I have to train our own. Are you still there at that, that shop? No, no. Moved to Savannah, Georgia and um, decided to move back east because, well, Austin was becoming a very expensive place. And um, I'm from the East Coast and just kind of wanted to get back where there were older buildings and more of a community, I think, that 
that I kind of grew up in and trained, you know, under the people that worked on these old buildings. So, and Savannah certainly has that. <laughs> and then, um, Having been here a couple of years and I had my own little shop, just me working alone. Then I was offered a teaching position at American College of the Building Arts, which is in Charleston. And so that's just a couple hours away. So I commute. I work there three or four days out of the week and go back and forth. That's a great environment because I'm back working with Europeans as well. The timber framers are French and German and the blacksmith is English and I feel like it's it's more of a, a kinship to where where I started out in New York in all these great old buildings. But um, it wasn't easy to leave Texas because it's booming. I mean, it's just that state's on fire and there's just tons of work, it seems like. Matthew, you can speak to this better than me. Can you tell us about your first shop and some of the jobs that you had and how, how you got like, yeah, what was tell us <laughs> what you made? <laughs> yeah, there's a good one. So we're broke. And um, in Texas, and um, I would go yank stones. If I saw them on the side of the road, I'd grab a stone. Or there was one, we did a little sign, a lettering job for this um, really well-known honky-tonk kind of place called The Broken Spoke. I don't know if you might be familiar, but it's a great old Texas place. And um, we just carved this broken spoke thing in a stone and went there to sell it. <laughs> and the guy was really nice, the owner. I said, yeah, sure, I'll buy that. And he gave us a chicken fried steak lunch and gave us some money. And then as we were driving out, he ran out after us waving a menu. And I thought, oh, God, no, he wants his money back. <laughs> and um, he had a menu in his hand with the the um, emblem, the broken the spoke. It's a wagon wheel with a broken spoke. And he said, can you all carve this? And I'm like, sure, we can. And so he gave us a 150 bucks or whatever to get started. And um, I remember we went out to the lake and there was some stone that had been dumped in that lake <laughs> a long time ago. And we hooked a chain to it and dragged it out, a slab of stone, and carved that thing in the back of a pickup truck. And um, so it looks like a headstone and it's just a wagon wheel with a broken spoke and lettering. And um, he put it up in front of his, the saloon, the honky tonk and um and then a car hit it and broke it and then they jacked it back up and big metal clamps on the side so it looks even better really um <laughs> definitely fits its setting and it's still there but that kind of gave us a leg up and then we got a fountain at a pub and and just you know kind of you work your way up and in those days in the early 90s it was fountains and mostly fireplaces were your bread and butter so they started to get that kind of work and then um, courthouse restoration. They just kind of kept, there's plenty of work in uh, Texas, but yeah, that was a, a big moment for us. <laughs> yeah. Broken spoke. Thank you, James. <laughs> Shout out to James. Any pieces as you look back that you're particularly proud of or continuing on that discussion of, you know, your progression of work. It's always good to just kind of look at it from a timeline perspective. Yeah, I'd say um, mostly, I think it's fair to say, stone carvers are pretty tormented people. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of what we do, we look back and we see the flaws more than anything else. It's a progression. Well, I didn't quite nail it on that one, but I will on the next one. Next thing you know, you've been doing it for 40 years. But um, certainly there are proud moments where you 
discover some new little twist in the carving that, you know, I refer to photographs from old buildings and beautiful carvings, broke carvings and carvings from the Renaissance. And I just think this is the tip top. If you can get anywhere close to that stuff, you're doing the right thing. And once in a while you, you get there and it's just like anything. I think it's just lots of hard work and practice and, it's a, you know trying to be as inspired as you can, but once in a while you, you get there, and those are great moments. And whether it's carving drapery on a statue, or maybe you've nailed down expression on a face, and you know that there's a link to what to you and those stone carvers from hundreds of years ago. There was one project I worked on it was a medieval little statue, and it had um, a broken arm, non-existent anymore. So it had its little hand on the hip. And the shoulder was still there. So I modeled it out of clay. And then I took that off and I carved as much of that little arm separate from the body as I could. And then I attached it to the body. And when I did the finished work, I found I couldn't get at part of that arm because the body itself was in the way. And so I used the body as a little fulcrum to put my chisel against. And I noticed there were little grooves in that body from the original carver did exactly the same thing. So it's just like this kind of time warp that puts you, you know, this is a 600 year old carving and um, that I like that aspect of it, just the historical significance in that um, so much of what we do really hasn't changed a whole lot in, in all that time. Yeah, in terms of work that I'm proud of, I I tend to lean more to foliage. I like more fluid work. Um, if it's a statue, I'm more content doing the hair or the beard, drapery, those types of things. And the actual form of the body is a little bit boring to me. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's a little bit harder than the rest. But I really like um, carving leaves and foliage and relief carving, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of that type of work that I've done that I like. But um, it's a tough road. I mean, mostly I just feel really critical of what I've done. Um, but I will say the two different disciplines in stone cutting, one is banker masonry, which is your geometric stuff. You follow templates. There's nothing left open to question. You know what the end product is going to look like um, versus carving, where you not necessarily do you know what the end product is going to look like. and the um, Banker masonry in a lot of ways is more pleasing because it's it's so clean and perfect looking. Geometry is easy on the eyes. I mean, I think in most cases, people like looking at this sort of thing. Whereas carving is a crapshoot. I mean, even though you prepare with drawings and models in the end, you you know, in the process, you might find some other way that something that you like that you discover in the stone. So you go with it. So you still find yourself out there in no man's land. And I think that's part of what most carvers strive for is even though we have, it's required that we have drawings and models. A lot of times the clients want to see what the end product is going to be. You still leave a certain amount of latitude so that you can get lost a little bit and discover a new way of something new that might make the carving really magical. And I will say this to any people out there, potential clients, the more latitude you give a carver, the more you're going to get for your money because they're just going to keep on carving. <laughs> the price is already set. If you oversee the work too much, then you're cutting off You know what they might put a lot more work into it if you just leave them alone. 
But um, an example of what's a banker project versus what's a carving project. Sure. Um, banker project would be if you look at an old cathedral and you see uh, a rose window or what we call tracery, that is banker masonry. That has nothing to do with carving. There is nothing free about it. It's a it's um, a full scale drawing. We we call it setting out is done. It used to be on the floor. You do a full scale drawing and then you break that down into how many stones it would take to make, let's say it's a rose window. And then those templates are parceled out to five or six carvers, depending on the size. And each one has to be cut exact so that it matches. They have to fit together a big puzzle. But that is banker masonry as opposed to carving. It's like a statue or a gargoyle, something like that. What about the floral kind of relief carving? That's straight up carving where if it's more classical work, there there's certain periods where there is less latitude for the carvers it, not to get too lost in the weeds but if it's um acanthus leaves like these swirling repetitive leaf forms that you'll see on a, a frieze or on a building um, a lot of times that there's not a lot of freedom there you have to have a template for that you know but within that each little leaf or flower or whatever is attached to it there each one has its own little bit of character still a pattern that has to look right but within that it has a lot of life because there are separate carvers that do different parts and i think that's a really important part about um architectural sculpture is that it not look the same on a cathedral we have lots of repetitive work you've seen these pinnacles where they have little knobs that go up the sides of the pinnacles well those little knobs are called crockets and they're foliated forms like cabbage like uh, leaf forms and um that was real apprenticeship stuff as carvers because there's just so many of them to do and it's not that easy they're three-dimensional and you know they're not they're not that easy to do but if you look on the building each one is more or less has the same profile but because different carvers did each one it each one has its own little pulse or bump or movement and that's key to good carving i think because it draws the eye it actually there is movement in the carving because each one has its own little pulse so it draws the eye up and you follow it whereas if it's just machine cut carving once you've seen one it's exactly the same as number 30 so your eye is not really drawn little imperfections and finer nuances that from one carving or one carver to the next is what really brings a building to life that makes sense. And it sounds like you work primarily on commission. Do you, and I think this is kind of an interesting conversation because um, like, for instance, I come at carving from the fine art direction. And yes. um, so like, do you consider yourself an artist and do you do projects just because you want to, is that an important part of your creative life or are you great commission? And it's a really good question. And the, uh, because of the training I had, we were taught to be anonymous. Car mostly traditionally carvers are not known unless they do statues like Michelangelo people. Then you're a name carver. I think that's existed for for most of the tradition. So we were taught certainly by the English. You never sign your work, and you don't. You're not really an artist. You're a craftsman or a craftsperson, and so. These terms get thrown around a lot. I really don't know 
I don't think there's really much difference from one to the next if it's craft versus art, but certainly it does in terms of the pay scale. So I am an artist. I'm always being corrected. <laughs> call yourself a carver. You're a sculptor. And it's just like, that's not the training that I had. We're, we're stone carvers and, you know, it sounds good to me, you know, but um, mostly these are unknown people and you're, you're working for the, the real art. The project is a building, you know, so you're just one component of it. It's almost like you're a, a comp, you know, an accompanist to the architect, even though they would just turn over a lot of that stuff to the head carvers or master carver, you still had to work within the big picture. And I think that was the interesting aspect of working on a cathedral and Matthew, you will know this <laughs> carvers are like, Cats, you cannot get carvers. Once they go off on their own path, they there nothing else exists a lot of the time. So the head carver, its job is to always herd these people back together and make them look at each other's work. It does have to relate on a certain level, and it's a tough one. But um, I think that's also kind of what's interesting about it is uh, you will discover that carvers do look at each other's work when you're not around. <laughs> And the French carvers pointed this out. When they would leave their workbench, they'd scatter lime dust around their bench like flour to see whose footprints, <laughs> to see whose footprints would go up to look at their work when they're not away. And so uh, <laughs> that's scary. clever. Take note. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where are we at in your, in your life? Are you still taking commissions now or are you primarily all you're doing is teaching? Mostly teaching. But it is both because um, summer before last, I carved a five-foot statue for a, a church in South Texas. So I still have summers off to do that kind of work. Throughout the school year, there's not really time to do it. And um, frankly, I don't care because I'm carving every day anyway in the classroom. And I think it's, it's exciting to work in a school because you have such a variety of work. If you if you're a stone carver and you're running your own business, sometimes you get locked into certain areas where you might be good at this, and so that's or you're working on a courthouse, so that's what you'll do for a year or a particular church. But in a school setup, it's we'll go from Romanesque carving to Roman carving to French medieval because you want the students to be have that much experience in all these different disciplines and styles and that sort of thing. So it's a good opportunity for an instructor because you're always learning. I've found this over the years anyway, you're always learning from the people you teach. And I've been doing it for a long time. And when you're teaching people that have never held a chisel before, you learn something by that. They have ideas that you don't have anymore. Or you've given up. That part of your spirit was killed long ago. <laughs> so it's always good to... Um, Young and old, I find having students always kind of expands my horizons a little bit as an as a as a carver, <laughs> not an artist. But so, in answer to your question, Matthew, more less work on the on my own kind of out of my own little shop, and it's more the um, with just within the classroom. Mm -hmm. Do you in the in the classroom? Do you try to? recreate some of the structure of a, of a workshop. The reason I'm asking is because I think that one of the, one of my teachers has been 
the time demand, the, the, you know, you have to, yes. you have to get this done and you have to work with the, like you were saying, you're a part of an ensemble. You have to work with a group of builders and other, other trades. Correct. Do you try to recreate that in the studio? Is there, is there any effort to do that or is that just not really possible in the, in the classroom? I'm sorry. Really good question. And I would expect a stone carver to ask that. <laughs> um, part of it is, and I found this in the other departments as well, it is kind of the romantic idea what the old stone shops uh, used to be and like what I started out in. But you have to face the reality of what 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 will be required of you if you go out on your own. So I first and foremost, try to just push the handwork, learning how to move a chisel around, because I think that's the hardest part. And then we we move into, and that includes pneumatic tools, but then we will move into using the saws and grinders, which is um, not so much fun, but it certainly gets the job done quicker. And it, it will be expected of you to know how to use those tools when you go out there, whether it's in restoration work, or if you're working for some a small stone carving shop or a mill, you're going to have to know how to use those tools. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the students, you know, I only have them 15 hours a week, each each grade, each class. So it's you got to pack it all in. But with respect to what you're asking, Matthew, they have um, externship that are required in the summer where they go work for these mills and and on real jobs where they have to use these tools. And so I just kind of try to get them up to snuff, just, you know, enough to, to be able to walk in there and know how to use these tools, but um, not enough time to really do the kind of repetition where they're really adept at, say, using a grinder. I push them more into the, the hen chiseled stuff because I, in the trade, I find that's what's lacking more. Can you give us kind of a quick overview of the program? Yes. The first year students, much like how I started out, I order slabs of stone from a, a quarry in Alabama. And then um, when the slabs show up, they go out, they drill holes, and they use what we call feathers and wedges to split the stone. And then each one of them has their own split stone. We pull it, in, pull it inside the building, and I teach them how – I teach them as if, they, if they're going to have their own shop with no forklift, I'll show them how to move stone around with no forklift. If they can afford to have a, an A-frame gantry to lift their stones, then I show them how to use that. And then, of course, the forklift. So I kind of walk them through. Moving stone is a big part of a stone cutter's life. These things are heavy. So once the stones are split, move it into the workshop, and then it's set up on their individual benches or bankers. And then they square those blocks up. In this case, I have them do columns. So they're all four foot long and they make a squared version of a column. And then they, what we call chamfering it down into a round, a round column. So that first banker masonry discipline is, um, you know, part of what their training should be. And then once the column is done, I move them right into decorative stuff. So we've been doing Romanesque columns. So there's a lot of, in Romanesque carving, there's a lot of repetitive work, which I find is good because the re repetition is good. You get to be better at it. Plus, it just looks good. A carved column is a beautiful thing. 
And then when they're done with that, I have them do the same thing over, split a block and square it up. And they carve the base molding to support the column. So it's back to banker masonry. So I try to leapfrog from banker masonry to carving so you don't get too bored with either one of them. And both disciplines are absolutely necessary in our world of stone cutting. That's first year. In the second year, they do the capitals. Before you go into the second year. Did yeah. you come up did you come up with that on your own? Because that's that seems genius to me. Like just uh, that whole approach. Because it's it seems to really be covering so many bases. It's super smart. No, I didn't. I mean, what we did back in Texas is that carve the cube and then into a ball. But I thought since these should be projects that they can later build, it was actually Holly, my wife, who said, Why don't you do a cloister? Because if it's columns are good training. And then I, I decided to go with Romanesque because of the whole repetitive carving thing. So, yeah, it was kind of a taking a chance, Matthew, and it did work out because they actually are pulling it off. These it seems like it's it's so great because it keeps the attention. Yes, but it, but it forces the discipline. Exactly. It's, yeah, that's great. And, and you're, you're building a cloister. Yeah, and we've got um <laughs> probably like um. 14 columns now. And so um, it's funny because some people prefer the banker masonry and some prefer carving. It's just interesting. It's just what, what we are as human beings. Some people really embrace the geometry and the clean kind of approach to cutting stone. And then others want to get crazy and, you know, just carve wild things. So I found that with a Romanesque um, period, you, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> There's a lot to play with there, monsters and sort of thing, gargoyle-looking creatures, and so it kind of works out. And plus, it's not so finely nuanced, that period. So the naivete of kind of approach, naive approach to carving lends itself to that period of carving. So if the carving is a little rough, it looks Romanesque, <laughs> and it also looks is pleasing to the eye, I'd say. And um, in the second year, they move on to the capital, which are quite big. These are um, like 20-inch square stones and 15-inch tall. So they're, you know, a couple hundred pounds. And they, once again, split it into a cube, and then they form the shape of the capital. And then the, there's a lot more carving required for the capital. So it's kind of pushing both of those skills a little bit further. And then we um, finish up by building the columns and constructing them and how the how you do all that pinning and that sort of thing. So it's really trying to pack as much in as possible within those first couple of years. And then in their third year, they move into separate projects where they have to do all the drafting and designing and template making for their own project. And then they um, split and cut their own stones, whether it's a doorway or one girl did a spiral staircase and somebody wants to do tracery so they all get to kind of break out and do their own projects, but they have to do it all the design work and um, kind of find their own way through. And then the final year is more preservation. So how to fix old buildings, um, placing old stones, Dutchman repair, and all these all these term, terms that would be required. These skills are required um, if you're going to move into the restoration world, mortar matching and stone matching and carvings that have to uh, match existing carving it's a pretty exciting world just that in itself working on historic buildings 
I apologize if I missed this, but where is this so I can enroll myself? <laughs> right, exactly. I was I was saying the same thing, Joel. <laughs> it's um it's in Charleston, um, South Carolina. And it's a great actually one of the guild members, Simeon Warren, is one of the founders of the school, and he's English Englishman, trained in England. I think he worked at Lincoln Cathedral. And um he founded, you know, certainly the stone department is his baby. And he left a few years back to go work for the National Park Service. So, but he's still um, very much involved with the school. It's a great place. I mean, the blacksmithing and timber framing and all this stuff under one roof, it really is, you know, when you go through there, you see it all. And um, it's, it's very inspiring. And then an architecture department upstairs and the sciences, you know, kind of the chemistry that goes into making certain um, mortars and different patching materials and that sort of thing runs the full gamut. But I, I read a book years back and I always make this comparison. It was a guy who used to write for the New York times and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he worked for the New York times in the 1950s, I believe. And he said in those days in times square, um, you had the editors upstairs. It was kind of the highest level was at the top of the building and then then you'd be a writer and it kind of goes down the building when you were finished with writing your story you signed off on it the editor passed passed it through and whatever the process is then it goes down into the bowels of the building where they they print it up they had the printing machines and the whole building shakes so you know that as a reporter a writer it's late there's no fixing it now it's you know it's being printed up and then the final part was when the trucks back up and hit the loading docks, which also reverberates through the buildings. You know that your work is going out. But it, I love that this all happened within one building, top to bottom. And that's what this school is, where you have the architecture department up, up front in the clean part of the building. <laughs> and they do all hand drafting. They learn computer drafting as well, but they learn to do beautiful hand renderings and drafting. And then they can see their projects through with the different trades the opportunity to work with the different trades, which I think in the architectural world, there's still such a disconnect, you know, in the last, since kind of modern architecture kind of took over that disconnect with the trades happened. And this helps pull those worlds together again. And it also changes the way they design because they can see what's available, what stone carvers and what blacksmiths and what carpenters, uh, what they can do. And you borrow from that and you design accordingly the way it should be really it used to be in our trade matthew and my trade you started out as a, a banker mason and maybe you'd move into carving and then setting out and drafting and maybe you'd be a designer and work with the master builder and the top most job is the architect that's the way it used to be set up and now that's gotten restructured but at least in this school and in many parts of Europe, I'd say it's still intact. And it's, um, we need more schools like this to, to kind of bring those worlds back together. Because I think the buildings we've been making are really awful. <laughs> they are. Say that. When you back up to the loading dock, do you always yeah. make sure to, to hit it a little bit just to bring some of that? <laughs> yeah. Circle? It's that, that little bit of stress and neat. He also mentioned the last place they went was to the bar, you know, <laughs> as soon as those drugs went off, they all went to the, which is probably also in the same building. But yeah, I really like that, 
that aspect of this operation and the school has grown and there's, there's always, you know, it's in Charleston. So there's always talk of opening another campus or, and that's problematic, I think, because um, if you split these trades up, then if they're not under one roof, then I think it's something that's lost there. If we can kind of keep everybody working together, then we can change the world. <laughs> I think that's really, really, truly possible to make buildings like we used to make them and um, not mimicking the old style. But for God's sake, let's try to bring a little bit more ornament and something, some human qualities and scale to our buildings. And it is happening on a certain level. And the most encouraging thing, and I'm really trying to toot my own horn here maybe, but to see freshmen carving Romanesque columns and capitals with very little experience, uh, that's encouraging. It shows that we absolutely can still do this. And, and with technology, it's making it a little bit more affordable, possibly. So let's keep hope alive on that one. So with people who are interested in traditional design, so part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is as a resource to people who are scattered around the country and maybe around the world, who are interested in traditional design, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily have a school in their state. Like, yeah. In your opinion, what are the things that people can do themselves? And what are the things that can only be passed on from person to person? Boy, that's a really good question. Um, part of me, <laughs> more phil- philosophical approach, I really think you know, everything is, is self-taught and you can learn these things on your own the real advantage to having an instructor is that they can just get you there a little bit quicker (laughs) and i find that people fear i found this in texas actually um people if they take on your methods and tools that they lose something of themselves in the process and that may be just a modern human dilemma where we all have to represent ourselves our individualities become more important but I can say with confidence, if you have an instructor, turn yourself over to that instructor because you will not, it's not possible to lose your own individual flair or aesthetic. You cannot, it may go away for a little bit while you're in your training period or learning through an instructor, but it absolutely still exists. And there should be no fear that, that, that your individual voice, if you will, is going to be diminished or go away by learning from others. But I mean, now in answer to your question, I think if you, you can see um, videos of how just about anything, you know, how to carve in my, in our trade, how to carve a flower, how to carve a face, how to model a face, how to do all, what stone to choose, what chisels, a lot can be learned online. If you don't have a school, you know, access to a school, but, um, and I think speaking for the stone carving world, we don't need a whole lot. We, you know, a, a block of stone and a handful of chisels and you're off and running. You don't need any fancy machinery, unlike a lot of the other trades where you depend on other trades to kind of finish your work. Not in the stone carving world. We we take a block, we do the finish to its finished stages and then stick it outside and hose it off with you know, with a garden hose and that call it quits. There's no fancy finishing work or anything like that. So it lends itself to the, someone who's teaching them themselves with all the, 
YouTube videos and references that you can get through photographs. I think you can learn a lot on your own. If you want to plug into the trade to work with those that have been in it a while, then obviously you have like the Stone Carver's Guild and some something like that that you can plug into. But I think the more the most experience you can get, and this is old school, traveling around, working with as many different people as you can, you're, you're going to gain. It's the old journeyman kind of, you know, once you've got your training, you go out into the world and you go from one place to the next and, and learn. And that you're very, that's a great benefit to that. And I will say also that the students at um, this college, one of the externships is to go to England. So they, um, they have the opportunity to work on one of 11 cathedrals and it might be repairing steps or a railing or carving some foliage on a capital or a gargoyle. There's a wide range of possibilities um, that just kind of opens the doors to see how other people do these things. In fact, I will plug this one school in um, City and Guilds in London, which is kind of uh, sometimes students leave this school and go there to get their master's where it follows up where you're learning wood carving and stone carving and plaster work and painting and um, all these things that, at that school is a great, it's, it's very similar to the, the one I work at. We just don't have enough of these schools. So Matthew needs to get on it and get his built in Texas. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to grab one of your students this summer and, or, or at least someone to yeah. help me out on these cap- capitals I got coming down the pipe. Yeah. So. You, you have a lot of work to do, my friend. <laughs> I do. I, I, there's a total of eight, but I've successfully gotten Bob to, take four of them so i have four ionic capitals to do and I, just four just four <laughs> and so if i may matthew's talking about ionic capitals which i'd say it's that falls into the category more of banker masonry where they're beautiful and they're not that easy to do but you are following a strict pattern and right. series of templates there may be a little foliage carving on them but i love them actually doing ionic capitals yeah Um, the geometric like the puzzle of it is what i I, because every time i do one i forget what i learned and then (laughs) i have to like the first quarter i have to like re okay here we go here's how here's how you attack it so uh i do like that i i when you were talking about the appeal of um some people find the banker work and the cutting work as you know appealing as a you know ornamental uh, elaborate carving i do sometimes just the the uh, the beauty of a well-executed return on a on a mantle is just sometimes i just step back and and just you know amazed by how nice (laughs) that looks you know it's just it's a really cool thing and uh Yes. Yeah, I really I think it's I think this program that you're describing sounds sounds fantastic. I, I'm pretty jealous. I wish I was uh 20 years old and could enroll. Well, we have older people <laughs> that go there. <laughs> <laughs> you're not over the hill. But, um Do you have summer programs and workshops and stuff? No, they're kind of working on that, but I think the teachers are so burned out by the time they really are. It's a long, they're 11 hour days pretty much every day, and it's just full blast. It's, yeah. I mean, in my workshop in Texas, we'd have long days or even overnighters, but mostly we try to keep it down to a regular 
seven or eight hours, but this is well beyond that. So I just try to pack in, I'll have, I'll show little videos of stone carvers working on a cathedral somewhere else or something like that to break the day up. But, um, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's we're burned out, <laughs> but there are, um, some pretty interesting little stone in terms of stone carving. There are little summer type schools that go on. I, I used to teach at one in New Mexico and Mark Sachs runs it Southwest Stoneworks. I'll plug that. And um, it's great. I think he's in his in 20 years and you learn the whole range of working with hard stones and granites and um, basalt and polishing techniques and that sort of thing and more modern sculpture with a Japanese instructor. And then the Western kind of more architectural type stone carving um, with limestone and marble where it might be heads or foliage or animals and that sort of thing. It runs the whole gamut. And um, those types of things, I think his is really exemplary. They do beautiful work and you learn so much. It's a, a one week eight hours a day for each day, beautiful place. And you walk out of there learning a lot. So those types of places exist. And I know in Canada, they have a few summer type things where stone carvers get together. But um, yeah, we shut down in the summer and run away, lick our wounds. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, before you run away, is there any, you know, as you're teaching students and you think back to, is there any, skills, any sort of concepts that are both, they seem to grab onto very easily? And are there any skills concepts that are harder to teach in your experience? Yeah, that's interesting. They do seem to grab a hold of the, the more, the masonry approach more where it's straight up geometry. So you're, it's a lot of repetitive work, but they tend to grab a hold of that because you, you know, at the end, what it's going to look like carving grabs people in general more they all want to be carvers and then um you know kind of do the creative work but it'll bog you down like if you're carving one of them's carving a, a dog and you get caught up in that it's great it's always great in the first stages where the form starts to emerge and then when you get down to the detail uh, carving all the hair or whatever then it's just plain work and that part of them get, <laughs> and it's frustrating because you just can't get that chisel to do what you want it to do. But there's a lot, of, so they'll get discouraged. But the moment it's like for me or anybody who's been doing it for a long time, the moment you do get it, that's a great moment. And um, then they're just, there's no stopping them. There are some carver, some of the students where I have to work really hard with them because they get frustrated. And sometimes, frankly, it's just a little bit boring. But um, when they do latch onto it, then, uh, you know, then I'm trying to keep up with their creative energy and feed it, you know, kind of help them along a little bit. There are others that just immediately are like that, where they just, they latch onto it and they weak. They're often running and experimenting, trying this and that. And it's just great to watch that. And you just, be there to assist them. Try this chisel, try that, you know, here's a little example of what you might, might help you along. And it takes on its own life quickly. I'd say it's a pretty quick learning curve, um, carving stone, but you got to not get lost in the weeds. And I will just say one thing. Um, 
one of the tools that we use is a, I think it's an old 18th century tool called the pointing machine, which is basically this strange looking device. It, it's like a three-dimensional ruler. You, so you have a model, raster model, and you put this device on it, and then you take a measurement from the model and you put it on the block of stone, and you're and you're carving according to where this thing points you, pointing machine. So from a carver standpoint, it's not the most exciting point because you become more of a, a technician than a carver. You're not really inventing; you're copying a model, but. It's funny how the mind works where you just can't possibly think that you should go as deep into the stone as this thing is telling you to do. Because as carvers, we just kind of whittle our way down, like peel it like an onion. One statue might be actually six statues in one. But this pointing machine makes you, forces you, and it's not intuitive to go way deeper than you'd think. But the Italians uh, utilize this tool a lot because you don't get lost or so frustrated you just say, I'm going to do 20 points a day. And if those 20 points mean you leave at 2 o'clock, then you leave at 2 o'clock. If it means you leave at 10 o'clock, then you leave at 10 o'clock. But at least you're on, you, you can, you've got something to hold on to because carvers can get, man, they can get lost out there. And before you know it, a lot of time has passed and, and then you can get frustrated and your work will suffer and, and you'll suffer. So it's interesting that there are these different techniques that can, um, you know, it's all how the mind can get through this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I teach these students how to, to use that. And not to get too um, technical, but a lot of people don't want to use the pointing machine because you're relying on – they used to have model makers. It was somebody's job to make a clay model, and then the carver would just copy it. And you'll see it on these old buildings where the carvings tend to look alike because one hand did all the creative work or fewer hands. And the carvers were so good what they did. They just make exact copies. So I uh, found a lot of sculptors would do like just a rough version of a model or just something so that'll get the form quicker by using the pointing machine. And then then they have to make it up, you know, the last 20% or whatever. They're back to being doing the creative part of it. So they try to instill that, kind of push that through a little bit. So that they don't get bogged down by the labor, but also that keeps the creative parts of it moving forward. Joseph, I just wanted to say thank you for yeah, uh, thank you joining us, and and this has been really interesting. Um, Glad to do it. Really appreciate um, your questions and and what you're doing with this. I, I think if you said all of this at a party when somebody asked you what you did, I think that I think you'd have to, the whole crowd would be around you by the end. No, I'm usually the last one. <laughs> I think anybody that kind of does creative work, once we get on the same page, then it's whether you're a painter, you know, a carver, whatever, then there is that commonality. But I think it's so important to see these shops and how these individuals work, like Matthew's shop, the work that these guys do is not seen enough. And that's one advantage of a school like this is quite a few people parade through and they just, you never get the opportunity to see this because a lot of these shops are hidden off in rural areas in Texas or Indiana. Or, and carvers tend to kind of be, I think I can say loners a little bit, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> and so it's just, people don't really have the opportunity to see how these things are made and that these shops do still exist and they're quite busy and interesting places and to see this kind of work. 
And um, I remember this one little anecdote back in the cathedral where um, carvers would feed off of the energy of one another. It was almost like cicadas where, you know, it slows down and then someone is doing something quicker and we all, everyone gets louder. So the, the rise and fall of the, you know, the cacophony of chisel sound kind of rises and fall out. Well, I always thought that was interesting. And I never really noticed it until back in the day we would play music tapes, you know, and somebody hit record instead of play. And there was like a good 10 minutes of just chisel sounds. And it was then that I noticed that we all rise and fall. And, yeah. funny. and we'll have that music to play us out today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. And good luck with you. Thank you, Joseph. You've been listening to the Stone Carvers Guild podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you will find us online at stonecarversguild.org. There you can find photos showing some of the things that we discussed today, additional information about our guest, and if you're so inclined, ways to get more involved with the Guild and our ongoing activities. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you will subscribe and rate us on the podcaster of your choice. Five stars, please. We'll be back in a month with a new episode. So until then, keep your hammer up and your chisel sharp.